Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Off the Road. Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. And we are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. So no matter where you travel, as the world continues to unravel, so you unravel with travel. You can find our podcast, Google, Stitcher, and iTunes with your personal 21st century digital listening devices, just as long as you smear them with a sufficient amount of hand sanitizer when you use them. So here we are, folks, hunkered down in our bunkers with with folks uh, looking forward to reopening quote, quote, reopening. What does reopening mean in the midst of a pandemic? The Cheeto in chief would like to get the economy going because he wants to get reelected. And he thinks if he opens the economy up, he'll get reelected. I guess it's as simple as that. And, and let's not pay attention to what the scientists say. Uh, but, but the scientists warn us that reopening comes at great peril. And if we look at what happened in 1918 with the oft-forgotten, oft-ignored Spanish flu pandemic, why it was named the Spanish flu, we'll never know. The Spaniards called it the Naples flu. Other people had other names for it. But it shows that there was a lull in the summer after a springtime infection. There was a summer and then it all it came roaring back. So folks, wear your masks, wash your hands, uh, and um, social distance, and social distance aggressively. That means stay far away from people and think twice about going out and going around. I, I don't wanna be um, a naysayer, a doomsayer, a voice of gloom, but it's still, we've got a real problem on our hands and no amount of jawboning from the Cheeto in the White House is gonna fix it. So Matt Robeson, let's, let's plunge right in to some interesting questions. Um, we accumulated some, some listener questions and why don't you pick the first question and uh, let's, let's hammer away and see if we can answer some of the issue questions that our listeners have raised. Great. I, uh, yeah, I, so we, I think we both got a, a couple over the course of the last few weeks. And, uh, you know, there's one that jumped right out to me off the bat, which was, it was sort of a national security angle. The question was, does the pandemic make us think about our national security in a different way? Seems like we usually only think about it in terms of the military, but now we have a totally different threat. Um, so, I mean, Paul, I'll, I'll, I'll toss that to you first. Um, what do you think? I, I, are, do you think that this 
makes us reconsider from a public policy and political leadership perspective the meaning of national security? Uh, you know, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Uh, if we think back to an era before Donald Trump, uh, that's not too many years ago. America was seen as a world leader, a force for good. Um, uh, our president was revered, Barack Obama. The American people were seen generally uh, in a beneficial light by many people around the globe. And uh, we had begun to take steps to exercise leadership on global climate change but we had joined the Paris uh, Climate Accord, which was a small step forward in a global approach to climate change. Uh, that went by the boards uh, in the Trump era. Trump um, distanced us from NATO, coddles and, coddles, up, coddles and cozies up to dictators and authoritarians of all stripes. He seems, he seems to like the authoritarian approach. Um, and lo and behold, the pandemic is struck, the pandemic is global, and there is an opportunity, I suppose, to rethink our national security. Uh, if I'm a metaphysical, globalist, holistic thinker, I would say simply what this pandemic reinforces is the reality that we are one. We are one uh, species uh, inhabiting a small planet to which we've done a lot of damage and there's gonna need to be a lot of repair and a lot of cooperation to work together to avoid pandemics in the future, to have an effective global response to a pandemic. Um, and from a national security standpoint, uh, when a global pandemic that originates in a country like China or some other country uh, can bring the United States economy to its knees and the population to their homes, uh, you better believe that, that what happens over there affects what happens here. So I think the, in, a, in, a, in a large sense, the notion that we can go it alone when it comes to uh, global issues is, is got to be re-examined uh, as the underpinning of any kind of national security. I mean, what, what does it help us in a global pandemic to have a military budget that um, exceeds that of all the rest of the world combined by a significant amount? Um, we're gonna have to deal with the global climate crisis. Uh, the Defense Department for a long time lifted climate change, listed climate change as its chief threat to national security because climate change uh, drives population migration, famine, uh, unrest, etc. Uh, and uh, that is what we're going to face when we recover from the pandemic. What are your thoughts? You're generally more prosaic than I am or more you know, that wasn't necessarily a down-to-earth analysis of national security. That was sort of a holistic analysis of national security. Well, I think that's, I think that's not a bad way to go at it. I mean, I, I think my answer to the question would be more of a straight-up yes, that 
you know, look, we, we have surpassed 95,000 Americans who have died. And for reference, we lost almost 3,000 Americans on 9-11, 58,000 Americans in Vietnam, 116,000 Americans in World War One. So we're on track to surpass all of those totals by many factors. Clearly, when you think about uh, national security and threats to America and our people, um, it, it is fair to consider a broader scope of problems and threats. Um, but, you know, I, I think what really kind of caught my eye this week was a story in the Wall Street Journal that Chinese diplomats have been instructed to become much more aggressive, to be wolf warriors, uh, which is a, a sort of a, a term based on a show, a TV show there where um, they, they battle Americans. <laughs> and uh, I think it goes to show that there's a wide open field from the Chinese perspective as America has retreated in terms of projecting uh, global power, but really upholding a global system of economic and political order. You know what, really, I, I think one of the most underreported stories of the year uh, came out in this book, A Very Stable Genius by two Washington Post reporters. It was also widely reported elsewhere, so I think it's very clearly well-sourced from inside the room, where uh, at the time, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, uh, the head of the National Economic Council, Gary Cohn, and the, at the time, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, tried to sit Trump down and walk him through the value and the history of the world order that was set up after World War II. They tried to explain why U.S. troops are deployed in so many regions, why America's safety hinged on this complex web of trade deals and alliances and bases that we maintain around the globe. And the way they put it is that that post-war international rules-based order is the greatest gift of the greatest generation. And Trump, his reaction was to say, why aren't we charging more money on our bases in Korea? And, uh, you know, can't we sell more Trump steaks? And he basically just, he literally called the generals in the room buffoons uh, to their face. And so, you know, look, as you alluded to, we've, he's criticized and split NATO. He cheered on Brexit, which divided the EU. We had the trade war with Europe. He laughed off Russian interference in Ukraine and in the U.S. I uh, took the Russian side in Ukraine. We have a trade war with China. We withdrew from the climate pact. We withdrew from the Iran deal. And just this week, there's news that he wants to withdraw from the Open Skies Initiative, which allows countries to fly over each other's territory just to make sure that no one's up to any skullduggery. This does not seem wise. And so, you know, I'm not trying to claim that we wouldn't have a pandemic today if we didn't have this president. But I, I do think it highlights that the threats are economic, biological, climate related, as you alluded to. And our strategy isn't as simple as cutting military spending, increasing military spending. It's all interrelated. I think your word holistic is actually perfectly on target, that it's, it's about how we weave together diplomacy, military power, communications, and our international ties to fight shared threats. So yes, I think the pandemic really should make us reevaluate how we think about national security. I would expect, um... I mean, this is this is really an important question, uh, because the 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 term national security and the strategy employed is at the core of the job of the next administration. If if we can achieve a democratic administration, and if by some chance we can achieve 
a, uh, a united government with Democrats in control of the Senate and the uh, House. And, and I, I, know, I know that's an if, but even with a Democratic president setting both a different tone, an agenda for national security is going to involve number one, uh, a new strategy and an actual plan, a strategy and a plan. Unlike going with the gut, um, national security actually requires a plan. It's going to, I, I appreciate that uh, I'm not being uh, too woo-woo with the word holistic when it comes to national security, because I think that part of the plan and strategy is going to, by, it's going to require a redefinition of national security in the 21st century. With the, with the experience of the pandemic uh, dis, uh, so clear, facing a global climate crisis, which if not taken head on and addressed and used as an opportunity to recover economically for the world and change our lifestyle for the better, reducing national security threats at home and abroad, if not taken head on, will, will, will deepen the distress caused by the pandemic. Um, I, think, I think the holistic approach is going to require a very sophisticated um, change and educating the American people, actually, from the bully pulpit in the White House about what national security really means. Um, we've got a virus that is killing people at a faster rate than wars killed people. Um, we've got you know, we've got a lot of uh, fences to mend in terms of national security. But, but I think the American people are going to need to be educated and brought into a plan. Because how do you say to a country where rugged individualism uh, and freedom and American exceptionalism has been the name of the game, we've now seen that we're exceptionally um, uh, sub, uh, ex exceptionally victimized by the pandemic is what we've been exceptionally victimized by. We've burned our bridges and broken our fences. How do we say to Americans, your fate is tied in with the fate of the poorest, distressed nations around the world, and you, we will only do well as a great nation if we are seen in the world and we act in the world as a force for good for all the rest of the world. That's a really tough sell. So there's actually another listener question here that links right to the point you were making. I'm wondering if we should tease it and take, take the break from the first segment and come right back to it. You want to do it? Tell us, yeah, tell us the question and then we'll take a break. So the question is, Speaking of the people around the world who, uh, who are bearing the brunt uh, along with us, is Donald Trump going to get away with shifting the blame for the failures in the uh, coronavirus pandemic? Is he going to get it with shifting the blame to China, Barack Obama, immigrants, and other places? I think that's a, that's a good one to jump on after the segment. Folks, for the answer to that question and probably others, you're going to have to stay with us here on Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We'll be back 
after this. We are back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXLAM and FM streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. My co-host Matt Robeson writes for the alternate.org. Lots of interesting articles. He publishes a blog at a moreperfectunionforum.com. I commend both his writing and his blogging to your attention in addition to what we're talking about on the show. And we're, we're talking about listener questions uh, in this week's edition of Off the Record. We have lots of things planned, but as usual, we probably won't get to most of them because we've got such an interesting discussion about listener questions. And before the break, Matt teased, teased this question. Is the great orange Cheeto in chief going to get away with shifting the blame to China? to Obama, to the Democrats, to, to Italy, to Hong Kong, to anywhere. I mean, anywhere, but any, you know, I mean, Trump's approach to life is anywhere, the buck stops anywhere but with me. I have no responsibility for anything. Everything is great. I am doing a great job. What's the matter with you? Forget about it. I'm just great. Everything's great, strongly great. And by the way, it's China's fault. China. China did it. China should have stopped it. China did it. They didn't tell us. And Obama did it. Obama's a criminal. I, I mean, Matt, if I, it makes me, I, I, almost, I almost run out of words thinking about the effort to shift the blame anywhere but where it belongs. I mean, who's gonna buy it? Okay, so let's see, who's gonna buy it? Well, one-sixth of America is getting its information about COVID-19 from the great Cheeto-in-chief in the White House, that orange crusty cruller who calls himself our president. One-sixth of America gets his information from him. Do they believe that it's really Obama? I mean, I think there's a certain se segment of America that anytime Trump blames Hillary or Obama or Biden or somebody will say, yeah, of course, those guys are just, yeah, those, it, those guys did it. I mean, if you listen to Trump, you might believe that Obama's the guy who brought back coronavirus to the United States and he's the guy who started the infections or it was a chicken from China. I mean, how can it work? I, I, I don't mean to be naive, but how can that blame game work? How, how, do, you, how do you sell it? Come on, give me, give me your best try. You are the smartest guy I know. You're a strategic thinker. How should Donald Trump make it stick? Well, I, look, I think he's the, we don't know if he can or if it will, uh, but you know, the, the evidence is kind of mixed. He may be batting 500 on this. So let's, let's, let's take the Obama piece first. Um, I, I think the, it's really soon. It, he's only been at this about a week, but the early indications are that one, that dog won't hunt. 
Um, you know, look, as recently as two years ago, Obama was at the very top of a survey of who people thought was the best president in history, right? And there was a poll just this week, it was a hypothetical, but it showed uh, uh, Trump losing to Obama, 54-43 in a hypothetical matchup. And, you know, when he's tried some of this specific stuff like, oh, you know, McConnell said, well, they didn't leave us a pandemic plan. Well, he had to call on, the, uh, uh, on TV the next day and say, I was wrong about that. They did leave us a plan. It was a 69-page pandemic plan. So, you know, that, that piece doesn't seem like it is very likely to stick. China's a little bit more complicated. There is some polling on this. And, you know, so far, at least in, the, in it was a good, it's a good polling outfit, Morning Consult, um, they found that three-quarters of Americans, including 71% of Democrats, do blame China at least somewhat for the COVID death rate. And there are also majorities that assign at least some blame to the WHO, to governments of other countries, and to immigrants. So now look, one can tell from the fact that 49 out of the 50 governors in the U.S., um, at least among the states, have higher approval than Donald Trump. And public opinion of Trump's specific handling of the crisis uh, is cratered. Even 37 percent of Republicans blame the Trump administration to some degree. But yes, there is a real chance that it would work. And you asked how. It's because people are psychologically prone to blame scary outside forces when scary things are happening. And that's what's happening right now. So, um, it, you know, it, it is it is a real risk that he may get away with this. Um, let me lob another, you know, the, I, I think it's another connected on, on, the, on the listener questions we got. Let me lob one back at you. The question was, should Joe Biden be making more noise right now? Now, you and I jumped into this with our guest, Jason Zengerly, last week. We talked about it a little bit, um, and he kind of batted around what Democratic insiders are saying. Where did you come down on that? Should Joe Biden be making more noise right now? Well, I came down from a conversation with my sainted mother, 93 years old. She hasn't seen another human for 10 weeks now. She's in New York City. Um, she does not have COVID-19 and doesn't want to get it. That's all. That's good news. And she started me off last week before my radio show. And she said, Paul, you've got to get to somebody and tell Joe Biden to make more noise. Paul, I don't see him at all, Paul. And of course, my name is, becomes a four-syllable four syllable extravaganza when, she's, when she says it. Paul, you've got to tell Joe Biden to make more noise. Thus, the question from our listener tracks the concern of my sainted mother. And by the way, my sainted wife, the diva, uh, has said, well, uh, you're on his mailing list and you're getting all the emails about what he's doing. I'm not seeing anything anywhere. Now, to be fair, she's not the most avid follower of network news or podcasts or news. But it's a real challenge for Joe Biden to make noise. I mean, you've got a you've got a guy sitting in his basement banging on a pot with a spoon, and the only people who hear it are Jill Biden and his staff who are six feet away from him. He could bang on that pot all day long, but trying to get somebody to cover it when COVID-19 is the story, trying to, trying to 
expand his base with social media is another thing. He's trying to raise money for uh, for for his campaign to to make ads. The the challenge is we got COVID nineteen, and how much noise is he able to make? I think, I mean, if you look at his schedule, and I've looked at his schedule, he has a he has a packed virtual schedule. He's virtually campaigning. He went to some state the other yesterday to virtually campaign. He's virtually holding town halls. He's virtually talking to people. And it's virtual. And it just if you if you take a step back, campaigning in the age of, of a pandemic is at every level a challenge. Um, uh, what, what you said people out canvassing in hazmat suits. Um, how do you hold a rally with people six feet apart? Uh, you can't have, you know, the person-to-person contact is gone. That said, at least from what I see, he's active on social media. He's figured out um, he looks pretty good on social media. But how do you get um, Joe Biden in the news all the time as a, as a former public relations maven and professional? I'm giving you that title. Uh, would you be doing anything different than his people are doing to get him out into the view of the public? Or is it just going to take a couple of months before everybody focuses on this and we end up having a two-week presidential campaign where everybody figures, oh, I decided anyway, I got my absentee ballot, I voted in July. Uh, I think I'm more in the camp of the latter. I mean, to quote the philosopher Bane from the third Batman movie, now is not the time for fear. That comes later. I can understand why Democrats have PTSD from the experience of the last election, and rightfully so. Um, You know, I, I think the fact that things are looking good right now is actually making them more nervous. But all that being said, you know, look, a month ago, Democrats were freaking out about the fact that, and I among them, you know, totally, that Donald Trump was getting this massive daily coronavirus press conference coverage. And let's not forget that it was estimated that he got about $2 billion worth of free TV coverage in the last cycle, because he is a guy who, like you say, is able to bang a pot and make a lot of noise and get a lot of coverage. But, you know, look, his own campaign had to urge him to stop because he was killing himself politically. And if you look at the latest round of polls since that time where he was omnipresent on the airwaves talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, his, his poll numbers have been slacking. Uh, the latest Quinnipiac poll has Biden up 50 to 39. Um, and look, all the caveats apply here, right? It's way too early. We know that none of these results are dispositive six months out. But, you know, look, the real clear politics average is Biden plus five. Uh, 538 has it, Biden plus six. You know, when you dig into the numbers, out of 15,000 responses to various state polls that have taken place in the last few months, it's a pretty robust result. You know, you're seeing about a plus six for Biden and trending from a Democratic perspective in the right direction. So, no, I don't think that now is the time to panic. What I do think to the question of should he be making more noise is, no, not for the sake of making noise, but what he does have to do is avoid getting caught on the latest Trump outrage of the day, the latest Trump shiny steaming object, and keep pivoting back to the fundamental failure of the last two months that has directly led to 90% of the deaths of Americans. I think he needs to stay laser focused on the theme of Trump lied, Americans died.
Everything else is noise. Well, I, I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, if I uh, take a broader view for a moment about the campaign and the campaign season, and, and by that, I mean presidential campaign and, and, and other campaigns. I mean, I think that um, what's interesting first is for a long time in March and April, nobody was paying attention to politics as far as I could tell. Things began to change uh, towards the beginning of May. Um, people began to kind of wake up out of the COVID pandemic uh, coma, the, the COVID coma, um, and look around a little bit. Uh, the governors began to lay plans for reopening the economy. Uh, politicians began to ramp up asking for money. Um, and to some extent, various online activities also ramped up. That included the presidential campaign of Joe Biden. Uh, and as we talked with our great guest, Jason Zegerly last week, behind the scenes, uh, they worked very hard in the, in the Biden campaign to get him ready uh, and, and create digital presence, which will clearly need to continue. But it's going to be a very strange summer. He is not going to be flying in an airplane all over the United States holding huge rallies of angry Americans uh, and excited Americans, inspired Americans, or whatever Americans are feeling, uh, which, you know, usually the, the presidential candidate in, in the opposition party after such a disaster enjoys. Because I think that, um, you know, that often happens is Democrats come into office and they have to clean up the messes of Republicans. And that's, that's going to happen here. And on the other hand, the mess that Trump has created clearly leads a lot of people to feel like, you know, somebody with some experience in uh, government be a really good switch. And, uh, and since Biden is who we've got, Biden is who we're going to get very excited about. But he can't fly around on planes. Uh, this summer, and, and Americans will not be taking to the streets in large socially distanced groups, marching and holding signs and singing songs and celebrating a political season like no other. But his strategy seems to be working. And if it's working and it ain't broke, there's no need to fix it. So can I tease the next segment? Yeah. All right. So the, Go the next listener question is, all right, I'm going to, I'll, I'll give it to you in teaser form. We have a listener question here. We focus so much on the presidential race. What about the House and Senate? After the break, we'll break it down for you and answer. Will the Democrats win the House and Senate? Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. 
where I'm talking in staccato fashion because my mentor Chris Ryan always told me talk in staccato fashion radio way, but I'm not exactly sure he's right, but I never get a breath. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for your binge listening, hunkered down in the bunker pleasure. And Matt Robes and I have been jawing away on listener questions, having a great time trying to figure out how to fix the world's problems. And frankly, if Matt Robeson and I were in charge of the world, we'd probably, I don't know, we, we, could, we couldn't do any worse than the Cheeto-in-Chief. How's about that for, for a tough sales job? We probably, between us, Matt, you and I probably have more government experience, legislative experience, strategic experience, uh, and policy experience uh, than the Cheeto in Chief will ever have in his lifetime. But there's a good, there's a good sales pitch. In fact, Matt, I've decided to elect you president of the United States. I'm writing you in uh, for president because you are the strategic democratic thinker who knows how we're gonna win back the Senate. You've got the crystal ball that tells us which way the Senate is gonna fall. And we've already got the majority in the House. Can we keep it? Now, I will say this. You got Mitch McConnell as the head of the Senate now and speaks like he's got marbles in his mouth. He's got a whole full of marbles. He's kind of a master at the politics game in the Senate, and he's he's actually challenged by a former fighter pilot who happens to be a girl. She's a girl fighter pilot, and there's no way he's going to let her beat him, but she seems to be doing pretty well in the fundraising department. We got out in Arizona, we got a gosh darn astronaut some kind of American hero, Mark Kelly, who thinks he's some kind of hero. All it did was go up and down and up and down a little bit, a little capsule there. I don't know why that, that gives him anything to think about. I happened to be married to Gabby Giffords. Gabby Giffords, all, what did she do? Not much. What is she doing now? Not too much. She's probably just sitting around, you know, knitting and helping Mark Kelly. But he seemed to be doing okay against that Mc, that McSally, is that the McSally lady? No, that's the, what's her name out there? I forget, I got so many senators to watch out for. But but he seems to be doing okay. Um, Mark Kelly, an astronaut Democrat, never heard such a thing. And then up in New Hampshire, I, I was hoping that Corey Lewandowski was gonna take on Jean Shaheen uh, because uh, I never liked her very much at all. I, I don't like her now, I didn't like her when she came in. And I, but I, that, that's going to be a tough one. Is there any other place where you see Democrats with a chance? <laughs> All right. So you want to do the Senate first before the House? Let's do the Senate. Oh, first. yeah. Um, so Senate, you know, look, I, the way it stands right now, the Democrats need probably four seats um, in order to uh, have a majority. And you know, it's been a really interesting two weeks polling wise. There have been some now they, these are outliers, but there have been some huge margins coming back in polls in Senate races in Colorado, Minnesota and North Carolina. Uh, sorry, Montana, Montana, and North Carolina. So, you know, it's uh, again, those are outliers, but, you know, they are of a piece with other polling that's pretty much across the board showing Democrats running much more strongly in some of these Republican held uh and competitive seats than 
we would have expected and certainly than we were projecting a few months ago. Um, you have polling in Michigan, in Georgia. There are two races in Georgia and in Arizona, as you were uh, alluding to, um, uh, Senator McConnell. Um, you know, it's anywhere from positive to very positive for Democrats. And then there's our friend Rachel Bittacoffer, who we had on the show two months ago, who just put out her Senate projection, uh, which says 50 seats for Dems, 47 for Republicans, and three pure toss-ups. So, you know, look, in 2018, Democrats won 12 million more votes in aggregate across the U.S., and they still lost net Senate seats. So there's lots that can change. But today, it's looking like a coin flip. It, it, a year ago, it was looking like a long shot. So positive change from the Democrats' perspective, uh, far from a done deal. Um, should we do the House? Let's do the House. Let's do the House. So the, the House, um, t Democrats hold 233 seats. The Republicans have 199. So the Democrats have a 34-seat advantage. And it takes, as you are well aware, 218 for a majority. Now, the good news for Democrats is that Republicans have more open seats to defend. There have been more Republicans retiring. That tends to happen when you're in the minority and when the prospects for regaining the majority don't look that good. So that's been a headwind for Republicans throughout this whole cycle. And if you look at the race ratings from the three major handicappers, prognosticators, projection houses, um, you know, the median of their projections is 222 seats for Democrats. Um, but the big data point that I think has been very encouraging in recent weeks is that as of today, on a generic ballot test, that's where you poll and you ask, would you vote for the Democrat or the Republican without naming names? Uh, today, that number looks like a 48 to 40 advantage for, for Democrats. That's pretty much the same. It's within one point of where we ended up in 2018, where there was a massive tidal wave election for Democrats. So that's, as Joe Biden would say, a BFD. Um, you can work out what the acronym stands for. And for everything held to today, the Democrats would be in a really strong position to keep the House. The only thing to note, the, the note of caution there is, these things do tend to move. Um, 538 did a study. They found that there's an average of a four points uh, swing uh, of movement um, between six months out and election day. And look, again, last, last cycle, 2018, Democrats had their biggest wave election since 1974. They won by eight points nationally, and they got 10 million more votes than Republicans, but they only ended up with a pretty slim majority. And one study found that because of gerrymandering, they lost 16 seats that they otherwise would have won. So it's a situation where Democrats are out in front today, but they have to be way out in front in order to actually win. And let's not forget just how important and how wild and crazy the election of 2020 looks to be. First of all, on the wild and crazy side, we have lots of activity all over the political firmament about voting. What is it gonna look like? How is it gonna happen? Are people gonna vote in person? What about the different states' approaches to absentee voting? Here in New Hampshire, there's, there's a huge uh, effort being made to make sure that the Secretary of State and the Governor mean what they say 
uh, that uh, there's going to be very liberal use of absentee voting. All, anybody can qualify for a disability because we've been in a COVID-19 pandemic. Everybody, anybody can get an absentee ballot and get it in. But the, the, the mechanisms in the various states for getting ballots, absentee ballots, and how people vote is in question. That's number one. Number two, there are fear, there's fear-based stuff running around in social media about Donald Trump canceling the elections. Uh, well, the president does not have the power to cancel the elections, folks. Don't worry, even the great Orange Cheeto cannot go that far. Now, there are people who go even further with their fear we're not going to go there now. But suffice it to say that this election will be like no other. The importance, among the importance of the election, is the point that you ended with, gerrymandering and what districts look like. Because now, in America, the way gerrymandering works is every 10 years, based on the census, people in state legislatures get to change their districts, their various districts, and through a process called gerrymandering or gerrymandering, named after, I believe, a politician whose name was Gary and who gave the mander its name. We now uh, have districts which basically prevent anybody from uh, the other party, other than the gerrymandered party, to be elected. And there have been, there's a, there's a, a push uh, among a lot of in a lot of places to to do district setting by independent commissions. Uh, there is a push to keep things just the way they are. There's a lot of cross currents about uh, what happens with redistricting in 2020, but it makes that election uh, in terms of the down ballot races that seem to follow often the House and Senate uh, and gubernatorial races it makes all of that very important for, for 2020. And so Democrats win when there's turnout. And I'm, I have concerns about, about how the pandemic will affect turnout and therefore affect Democrats. Because if, if those who might be disposed to Democrats have been disproportionately hit by the pandemic, uh, if black and brown and poor people who are the natural constituency for, for Democrats in an age when they can say, what has Donald Trump done for you lately? How do you like his tax cuts to the big billionaires? How do you like what he did when he gave us uh, COVID when he could have stopped it? Uh, they may not be able to get out to the polls. Some of that in a very few short minutes we have left may depend, and some of the enthusiasm in this vote, in this election may depend on who Joe Biden, a very known quantity, chooses for his VP. Who should it be? Okay, Matt Robeson, you have two and a half minutes to tell us who it ought to be, and I will tease you with the political article that came out today, uh, which, whose headline is, Warren pivots on, quote, Medicare for all, unquote, in bid to become Biden's VP. And the article ends 
ends with, uh, it talks about Warren, but it also mentions lots of people, Stacey Abrams, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Gretchen Whitmer, um, all of whom seem to be the front runners in at least the minds of the politicos for the job. Who's it going to be? Well, I don't know who it's going to be, but you know, if I were picking as of today, I'd call this a, well, I'll, I'll call this a strong opinion lightly held, meaning I feel strongly about it, but I'm open to the idea that, uh, I could be persuaded in a different direction. Look, I think it should be Kamala Harris. Um, I think that there's pretty persuasive evidence, including from uh, our recent guest, Dr. Ted Johnson, um, who is one of the world leading experts on this topic, that um, having uh, someone like Senator Harris on the ticket, and I would say specifically Senator Harris on the ticket, would do the most to win. In my mind, this is all about winning. Um, I, and so what do you need in a VP selection? Well, I, you know, you can break down the various studies that have been done. Uh, it turns out that there's, you know, it, it doesn't matter that much in terms of winning a particular state that you have a VP selection from that state. There's no home state effect. Um, we already know that it's going to be a woman, which is terrific. And um, so really it just comes down to, you know, are you going to try and make a play for more swing voters, moderate voters? Um, are you going to try to excite progressives or are you going to um, try to uh, appeal to some of the demographic groups that are the foundation of the Democratic Party? And I think the evidence is pretty clear. You know, one study found a 5% increase in turnout if you have a black candidate uh, on, the, on the ballot among African-American voters, 22% more likely to vote from another study. So I just think it's it's hands down the biggest impact that Biden could have on his chances to win would be Senator Kamala Harris. Folks, you heard it here on Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul on WKXL AM and FM. Matt Robeson has just picked Kamala Harris as Joe Biden's VP, something I happen to agree with. Don't go away because we're going to be back after this for our wrap up and uh, we'll be back. We're back off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WUKXLAM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com and a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Well, Matt Robeson, prognosticator-in-chief, ended our show by choosing Kamala Harris as VP from your lips to God's ears, as the saying goes. We answered listener questions. I had a good time today, Matt. I don't know about you, but we fixed national security. We blamed China for the pandemic. We didn't blame Obama. Uh, we said Joe Biden ought to be banging on louder pots in his basement to make more noise. We said maybe we can even, even there's a chance we might even take the Senate and lose Marble Mouth Mitch, Marble Mouth Mitch McConnell as the leader in the Senate. That would be great. And you've decided that Kamala Harris is our VP. I, I, think, I think we wrap things up pretty well. 
until next week, we'll be back with more Off the Record with Matt Robeson on Paul Hodes right here on WKXL. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to the sponsors who keep this show on the air. Remember, we're always happy you as a sponsor for the show. So don't hesitate. Give us a call. Thanks, folks. It's Off the Record. We'll be back next week.